Welcome to Sustainable 200 and... Something, something. We're recording this in the past, so we're not exactly sure what episode number this will be. But we are Sustainable. We are your friendly little weekly environment podcast. Ain't we all? Yes. All about people and the planet. And why? Just because literally everything from every angle is screwed, that doesn't mean we can't find time for a bit of jolly good British sarcasm about it, yes? Absolutely. And what are we going to be having some jolly good British sarcasm about today? We are going to have an exceptionally British, frightfully English, well-to-do, upper-class, biff-baff-boff. No, none of that. We're going to have an excellent conversation with the author, Leah Thomas, who is, apart from anything else, brilliant fun and a wonderful communicator uh, and the author of a new book called The Intersectional Environmentalist. What does that mean? Well, Dave... What does that mean? Well, stick around for a 45-minute chat with Lyra, which she explains what it means. In essence, it means uh, you can't do anything about saving the planet if you don't also do something about racism and other types of structural inequality. It's like this is all the same thing. And if you are on the sharp end of any of that stuff, in particular racism in the American context, certainly, if you're on the sharp end of that stuff, you are more likely to be on the sharp end of environmental stuff. And it's like, it's a big word. And Leah unpicks it all absolutely brilliantly. So stick around for some of the best explainering you're ever going to have. It's a big word, but you made it bigger oh, shit. in the interview. Yes. I, I sort of meant to say this at the time well, and then didn't. You didn't you, correct me and Leah didn't correct me. No. I, I know. But I you know. decided to make intersectional, intersectionalist. Well, which it wasn't why a, not? There weren't I enough mean, syllables in it. In for I a thought. penny, in for a pound. Yes, sorry, Leah. You should, look, look, next time I get the name of your book wrong twice to your face, Leah, bloody well correct me on it. The Intersectional Economist. Environmentalist. No. no. Ah, is did the name of the to, book. Did you do that on purpose? No, I'm just an idiot. <laughs> oh, I'm God. very old. Um, the Intersectional Environmentalist, not the Intersectionist Environmentalist. Anyway, shut up and listen to this. It's brilliant. Learn stuff. Get inspired. Shut up, I'll say something else. Just the usual disclaimers, we do work for environmental charities, uh, me and Dave, that is. So if you have any beef with anything we say, bring it up with us, not with the people for whom we work. Yes? Yes. And we are a listener-funded, independent podcast, and we need your cash. So you can give us cash, uh, if you have any, by going to www.patreon.com forward slash sustainable. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much to the people that do, to all of you that do. Uh, it is unbelievably generous and much appreciated and enables us to keep going, to keep babbling, to keep, frankly, talking to brilliant people like Leah. Right, very good. So here's our chat with Leah. Strap yourself in for some interesting stuff. And we started by asking Leah, all the way over in California, what the hell she makes of the UK from over there. Right, Leah, hello, hi, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you all? Uh, well, it depends how you're looking at it, rather, yeah. isn't it? I mean, the sun's shining, that's good. Bit too much at the moment, that's kind of bad. Oh. Too, <laughs> much. too much, too <laughs> much. Too much, it's too much. It always happens. You complain when it's sunny. I know it's like sunnier than normal in the UK, but you can't just keep complaining about it being sunny. Sorry, Leah, one this second. We, so we, literally, we literally did an episode, two episodes ago, complaining about it being 40 degrees. Was yes, that which is, which is not now. It's 30 degrees. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Shall we, do we take this <laughs> take this outside. Stop wasting Leah's <laughs> time. Leah, speaking of the UK, what is your view on the UK at the moment yeah. from over there? What sort of, what perception do you have of the state of our beautiful country? Um, I mean, I can't really say too much because we had Trump in the United States. So, you know, what can we, what can I say? Um, but I live in Southern California, which is very different from the rest of the United States. We have legal cannabis. We have, you know, like diversity education. Meanwhile, lots of like far right, um, groups in the U S are trying to like ban critical race theory. And there's just a lot of great stuff happening in California. Um, I wish we were our own country. Um, but when it comes to the UK, I was there twice last year. Um, I was in Scotland for a little while and then I went to London and you know it's a lovely place it's a dark 
place. <laughs> um, it's not very sunny. It rained a lot, but lots of good people, lots of chips and uh, good food. Um, funny humor, too. It makes me happy. Yeah. Well, when it's politically, dark. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> what is that? That's my Cockney accent. No, no, that's no good. But how, how did it? So how did it all start for you, Leah? How did your campaigning, your writing? How did? I mean, we haven't even talked about it yet. But how did your formation of um, intersectional environmentalism begin? Yeah, so I guess I've always loved plants and animals. And I grew up in the Midwest in the US, which is like smack dab in the middle of the country. So it's kind of like a southern meets northern experience and a really slow pace of life where I was just out like catching toads and frogs. So I've always really loved, you know, plants and animals. Um, And it wasn't until college when I started studying environmental science that I got more interested in social justice. And that's because um, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of started in my hometown of like St. Louis, Missouri and Ferguson, Missouri, because of um, police officer involved shootings. So I was studying um, environmental science at the same time that my hometown was reckoning with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, lots of protests and things like that. I believe that was like 2014, 2015, actually around this time. Um, So then I just really started to look at the intersections between social justice and environmental issues because I couldn't really separate what was going on back home from my environmental studies. And then quite frankly, I started realizing the environmental space was not very diverse. Um, There weren't a whole lot of people who looked like me. Um, And I tried to do everything. You know, I was a National Park Service ranger for a little bit. Not very diverse, but lots of fun. Um, I worked at Patagonia, like a leading green company. They're very sustainable. Great place. Nice clothes. Ethically made. Not very diverse. Um, I tried to go into like policy, not very diverse. So I kept seeing similar patterns and realized that low income folks, you know, women and black and brown folks needed more representation in the environmental movement. Um, So yeah, that's how I just started writing about it, what it meant to be a black woman in the environmental space. And I garnered kind of a small following on social media. Um, And then in 2020, when the Black Lives Matter movement kind of, you know, shook the United States in a major way because of more police officer involved shootings, a lot of people in the environmental space were saying, well, okay, we're ready. How can we get involved? And I wanted to just be a really accessible resource for people. I didn't want to shame people who weren't on board, even though sometimes I wanted to, but I just wanted to create a resource hub where people could learn about environmental justice and how culture and climate go together, because it's not always the most obvious thing, like talking about culture and identity and environmentalism and I wanted to make it as easy as possible so that's a little bit of my story kind of bouncing around but lots of dabbling in different environmental things and realizing you know I kind of want black people to take up more space so yeah your book is fab I must say and we'll talk all the way through about how fab it is but one of the things that i loved about it was the way that you just bring everything to life you don't just talk sometimes a lot of this stuff can be really abstract and like concept 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 abstract big long words and it makes my head hurt a bit but all the way through your book you kind of go like and this is what it means right so bring it to life for us like where you were growing up what does it feel like what did it what was it like um and then how does that relate to environmental stuff as well Yeah. And I think for me with my writing, I want things to be as accessible as possible. I think a lot of academics are such snobs. And I know that after studying environmental science so formally, and then I started thinking, what's the use of all this climate science if not everyone can understand? Because a lot of climate movements and spaces are just so elitist. And it's like, if people don't know what you're talking about, isn't the goal to get as many people as activated as possible? So this should be accessible. So the way that I to confuse people the goal <laughs> is the goal is to sound clever and confuse people we made a whole podcast out of them being confused so, yeah. no but that's so true and that happens in social justice spaces sometimes and you know I love all the different theories but I want people to understand so I think growing up in the Midwest which isn't as progressive as say you know Southern California I realized okay I'm learning all this stuff and I'm talking in social justice speak but not everyone can understand me and this just 
it feels very elitist and icky and I don't like it. So I think one common misconception is that like talking about things in a way that's accessible is like dumbing information down. It's not. It's kind of like an equation and it's just making things more accessible. So I just love that little equation of putting words together. Um, but yeah, I guess with my upbringing, I didn't realize that my parents were kind of radical until later in life. Like they took me to protest all the time. They wanted to change our last name because they didn't want to have like a slave name. Um, you know, we did Kwanzaa. I've been I guess technically going to protest since I was a baby and there's little photos of me like demonstrating for racial justice when I was younger. So I just thought it was normal to have parents who were like that. Um, and then I don't know, I think Ferguson really, really shook me. I don't know how much awareness there is, which is also interesting with my book coming out in the UK because yeah, I don't know how much awareness there is if I say like Ferguson, if people, you know, know, but it was kind of the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement in the US and there were protests with gas stations burning down. There were journalists that were being arrested. My sister and friends were being tear gassed. Um, and organizing in the US and the UK is very, very different. Um, they have so many different they have a lot of similarities and differences when it comes to police brutality. But I think that really shook me just seeing the ways I really wanted to take part in an org like Extinction Rebellion. But then I thought, oh, my God, I would die in the U.S. Like, to be completely honest, because I had witnessed what happened to protesters in the U.S. during the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was a disconnect. Like, there's this radical climate organizing happening in the U.K. And there are some black folks who are a part of it. But I was like, why don't we have access to that? And why don't so many other people all over the world, why can't we participate in these theatrical protests? So I think that's something that just stuck with me for a really long time. And um, I wanted to just kind of dissect that a little bit, if that makes sense. This has been going on before Michael Brown. This has been going on before Trayvon Martin, before Emmett Till. You know, this has been going on for a long time. We are just sick and tired. Must disperse immediately, or be subject to arrest. I was just—I was, was actually in the in the states when that when Ferguson happened. So, uh, wow. Randa, I was just having a brilliant holiday. On so, the West so in Coast. a while, it's kind of—it's it's all about you, really. Exactly. It? I realised. Yeah. I realised this is all about me. Uh, but no, what I was going to say, Dave, was exactly that. That when I was in the states, it was obviously on TV. You know, every time we got to. a Place, new place we were staying it was on TV it was like clearly a big deal and crazy and then when I got home from that holiday back to the UK like it was it wasn't really a thing it wasn't really news I mean you know it kind of I, was I, it was immediately at the time I think it was but it, it didn't dominate the headlines for sort of weeks right, after I think that's yeah. right and then and you know as you were saying earlier Leah that you know Black Lives Matter movement was kind of kicking off around then I think I think for loads of people in the UK, uh, and I don't know, is this the case in the US as well? It felt like Black Lives Matter only really became a thing in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And it was like, no, this is <laughs> this is a movement that's been going on for a while, right? That's so true. And I at times I felt angry because Ferguson, uh, the uprisings, I think it was 2014, 2015. Um, I forget the exact year. It's all a blur. Um, but yeah, it was like six years until 2020. But sometimes that's just how things happen. And to be completely honest, I think it was when a lot of probably like liberal leaning white folks, really, a lot of like Gen Zers were like talking to their parents in the U.S. of like, this is messed up. And that tends to happen in a lot of racial justice movements in the U.S. in particular. And I'd be curious um, when it comes to the U.K., but like when white folks get hip to what's happening, they are very loud and they use their privilege to make it to make other white people know what's going on. So I think in some ways that's the beauty of privilege and it can be really frustrating for the organizers behind the scenes who have been organizing for a long time, but it's just what happens. And that's even happened during the civil rights movement back in the day in the United States. All of a sudden there were like, you know, Catholic priests that got hip to civil rights injustices and they were talking to their congregations about it. And I don't know, it's just a display of privilege that helps to amplify these 
narratives to the mainstream and get more people involved. And I could have been angry during that time and just really cynical, but I just realized, okay, all of a sudden there's millions of people around the world that want to learn about racial justice and not only that, environmental justice. Like who would have thought that all of a sudden in 2020, millions of people would care about EJ? So you know what? I'm not going to be here to shame anybody, but if they're here, I want to make really accessible resources because I think we have a chance to reshape environmental education and social justice education and just meet people where they're at. So I don't know why it takes such a long time. I feel like it always does, but you know, I'm not mad about it. There's a, there's a wonderful bit in your book, one of the many wonderful bits, where you say something like what you just said there, but, but kind of about environmental justice more broadly, where you say something like you've, you've come to realise, is this you or are you quoting someone? You've come to realise that it's only when rich folk in the global north say something is a problem <laughs> that the world is going to take it seriously as a problem, at least a sort of mobilising resources thing. So I guess mm -hmm. that's like simultaneously really fucking annoying right yeah <laughs> but also the case right and so are you kind of where do you come down on that like it shouldn't ought to be like that but it sounds like you're kind of going but it is and you know that's how things are yeah it kind of is what it is um and i don't know hopefully it will change and i've had a lot of anger i used to be like a very angry person but i don't think that anger is a really sustainable emotion and really i just lean into like laughter like it is funny in a horrible way and i don't know just finding some humor in that like this is so messed up but it is what it is so i don't know when you accept those truths about the world it just makes things a little bit easier even when they're like dark truths rooted in elitism and you know whatever but i just kind of go you know it is what it is and if this is the system that we're working with until we dismantle it which might take freaking forever like my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents, they've been organizing and we're getting closer and closer and closer to the justice that we want to see. But if this is what the system is, we can actively dismantle it while also accepting the reality of what it is. You ever drink to escape from reality? So it sounds like that you uh, demonstrate things that we don't demonstrate very often, which is remarkable uh, restraint in the face of quite often provocation. Um, and you you kind of rise above stuff. But you you must have had some right dickheads like explaining <laughs> or rather mansplaining, I bet, I guess, to stuff, stuff to you over the years. Like... Yeah. I mean, I know, I know you're going for like grace and rising above it, and but come on, tell us the worst. <laughs> tell us the worst. Can we have your top five oh dickheads, God. please? No. One I remember there was one time, and I know like political parties are different, but I was at a party in college, and there was this guy who was embracing like libertarian ideologies, um, the types of folks who are like, we don't need to wear seatbelts. We don't need a speed limit. The people will regulate themselves. And I remember what I said to him, and this is what I feel for all the, you know, assholes that I meet. I was just like, you're not special. And that was so mean. I think that's the meanest thing I've said. But I was just like, you are not special. There are so many other rude, like, you know, <laughs> white men who think just like you. And like, you think that you're the first person that's bringing this to me, but you're not. So that's kind of the energy that I bring with Grace. And it was so funny because I went to school, college in this like very wealthy, not diverse area. But, you know, I had a scholarship to go there. But it just seemed like so many people, they didn't realize their mansplaining is something that I've heard time and time again as a woman navigating through STEM, navigating through social justice. So just shaking people up and being like, yeah, I've heard that before. I think it just crumbles their ego. But yeah, so there's been a lot of different times like that. Like I'll be on, you know, really important panels or things like that and there's some guy in the audience or a person in the audience who's like but race doesn't have to do with environmentalism and I just have so many facts and I have so much data and that's why my book is cited like crazy because there's just so many people that want to argue the data but I don't know at this point I just don't care and I just am like you know you're not that special not saying that every every person is special I think people are special in their own way but I do enjoy like gracefully humbling men <laughs> never gets you yeah. I suppose yeah okay uh, so your book 
Oh, I've come up. I'm blushing all. Got to help me. You're blushing? Um, your oh. mood is cool. You're special, Dave. Special. I'm special. <laughs> I think you're special. Shut up. You Shut are both very special. <laughs> Shut up. Right. <laughs> The intersectionist environmentalist. That's a lot of syllables, isn't it? Test 12. Yeah. It's out, firstly, it's out in the UK in a couple of days as people listen. It's the 1st of September, right? Um, yeah. Although I happen to know of at least one person in the UK who's got it and read it already and loved it. So I don't know how they did that, but they've got it anyway. I think the pre-orders <laughs> might be going out. Anyway, um, intersectionist environmentalism is a thousand syllables. What If you could only <laughs> use words of two syllable... Which is, let's face it, what you probably have to do to explain to people who don't understand what that is. How would you explain what intersectionist environmentalism is? Like, what's the simplest way you can do it? Um, I would just say, like, protect people and the planet at the same time. Like, we are humans on this planet. It is our home. Therefore, we must protect both. I don't know if that's the easiest way to explain it, but it really is just, like, protect people and planet at the same time. And that sounds so obvious because you would think, okay, well, our fight to save our home planet and the climate crisis, it's rooted in wanting to save humanity, but it's not always. Sometimes we're talking about the climate science, but we're not talking about the present and who is experiencing environmental injustice, you know, right now. So whether that's low income communities, which I would say is probably even more rampant in the United Kingdom, because I think classism is a little bit different. Um, I would say in the United, I mean, obviously there's racism, but just the two places are very different. I think classism, I mean, what do you all think? I don't, I don't know, but I feel like classism is even more rampant in the UK. So um, yeah, just things like that impact people's environmental outcomes. Now I'm rambling and it's not making sense, but I'm going to say protect people and the planet at the same time. And there are barriers that make that really hard, whether it's, you know, income inequality, racism, sexism, etc. Well, we, we will get on shortly to Ol's extensive views on the class system, but I just wanted to check in <laughs> on the, the intersectionist bit is a term. You didn't invent that term, right? And could you no. explain like what, what that term is? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so I think this is really important. I did not create intersectional theory. It was created in 1989 by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who um, is actual, actually a legal scholar in the United States. She's a black woman. Um, she is also in part responsible for critical race theory, which is a separate theory, which is very polarizing in the United States. Um, but intersectional theory, it all stems from a court case, which I'll just take a short moment to explain. So General Motors, the car company, back in the day, like 40 years ago, um, maybe more. Um, so there's an office that fired all of the black women and the black women tried to sue. However, in the United States, they dismissed the case on the grounds that there were still black men working there and there were still white women working there. So they said, if black wow. men are working here, this can't be a racial issue. And if white women are working here, this can't be a gender discrimination issue. And Kimberly and other people were saying, we need to look at both factors. These are compounding factors of them being both black and women, which led to this legal outcome. So if you don't consider compounding factors and, you know, a legal court case, there's going to be lots of loopholes and discrimination can continue. So the basis of intersectional theory is it's important to look at compounding factors of things. And I think that that should also be applied to environmentalism because we might see, say, a specific community that is more likely to be um, in contact with toxic waste. And some people could say it's an income issue. It's not a racial issue. And people could fight back and forth. But there's probably compounding factors there as well. Like income is also an issue. And then race is also an issue. These things compound. So it's really important to consider um, some of these identity aspects when you're talking about who is experiencing a particular injustice. And um, yeah, so inter that's what intersectional theory is. I've heard other terms like used even in college education, like interdisciplinary studies that touch on multiple topics or, you know, overlapping things. I'm sure there are other words with less syllables that you can use, but that's what intersectional theory is. I mean, that's 
by a distance the clearest explanation I've ever <laughs> encountered. <laughs> um, and it makes total sense. And I, I mean, I guess just to give that example of of the what was it interdisciplinary studies or something. I mean that mm-hmm. that doesn't work for me because that immediately makes me think of okay when I'm in a university or a library like reading about this stuff and studying stuff whereas what you just described sounds like lived experience and and Mm -hmm. the messy reality of how lives are shaped and um held back or advanced and and i suppose the other the other thing i just wanted to ask you about is i guess the flip side which is which is privilege um Mm. because again you in your book uh dave pulled this out when he was reading is like look look at this this is a brilliant (laughs) brilliant (laughs) definition like in your words how how would you define privilege and why is it important in the context of intersectional environmentalism yeah and i wish i had my book i was gonna say i'm gonna if you could i'm gonna (laughs) test you now on what you think about (laughs) i would say privilege um would be like unearned benefits that someone has in society. And when I say that, that can be kind of triggering for a lot of people because you're like, it's not my fault. I was born rich. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, I'm not attacking you. Like, it's it's not what I'm saying. But even when me with me, when I look at my life, like I can think of things and I talk about this in the book. Like, so both of my parents, so I was raised in a two parent household where that had an impact on my life in some way, just having that like nuclear family unit or more specifically, both of my parents went to university, uni, as they call it. <laughs> so cute in the UK. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, that made it easier for me. I'm not saying that someone who had parents that didn't go to university can't get into university because that happens all the time. There are so many first generation students, but because my parents um, went to college, they guided me through the application process. Um, Or, you know, there's other unearned benefits that I've had in my life that, you know, my mom being a mental health professional. So I always, you know, thinking about mental health, having access to that was something that was always available for me. So I feel like they're like unearned societal advantages. And then I know that I have privilege, but one of them is not whiteness in a white dominated society. Um, So I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense, but just unearned characteristics that might benefit your life in some way. And that doesn't mean that you, you know, can't work hard to defy all the odds, but I think it's just silly for people not to consider how things like wealth or gender or, you know, being a part of the LGBTQ plus community or even like disability, how that might impact someone's life their lives. But in the United States in particular, there's something called like the pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality, which is so deeply embedded into our culture. And I'm sure in some ways into your culture as well, um, just thinking like, you know, you can defy all the odds. So even if you were born into poverty, you have no excuse, but to become a millionaire and they might point to a couple examples of people, but that's just not fair um, because those odds are making it lot harder for people to accomplish certain things so yeah I, I hear what you're saying but the thought that i have white privilege makes me feel really bad it's okay it's Jane. made me i'm feeling bad oh i hate racism you've got this amazing line in there where you say i'm going to quote those who hold more power and privilege in society are less likely to be exposed to environmental injustice and hazards, right? Statement of, statement of blindingly obvious truth to me. Like, more rich you are, less likely you are to live next to a gas leak. It's just like the way yeah. stuff works, right? So nobody would disagree with that. I don't think even like the most sort of ardent liberal, libertarian would disagree with it. But they would say, oh, uh, yeah, but they in some way deserve it, right? Because they would say... Uh, they have, a, you know, power and privilege are, are earned things. You get them because you deserve them. But then you're concluding that people who are on the sharp end of like living next to the worst environmental problems deserve it. And I can't, you know, I can't really, I don't know if I believe that's what people really, really think. But do you think that's what like millions and millions of people think? Or that there's this kind of something, this fiction that loads of people sign up to? Or what? I think there's a... F- there's a fiction that people sign up for. So there's an interview with Kim Kardashian um, a couple of weeks ago or months ago, I don't know, and it was trending, where she said, I just feel like people don't want to work 
anymore. People just don't want to get up and work. And I was really thinking about that because there are a lot of millionaires or even just middle class folks that feel very proud of what they've accomplished, which they should. But sometimes they feel so proud and they start buying into again, my whole you're not special thing, that I must be very special if I was able to acquire wealth. So I must be more talented than other people. So they start assigning a significant amount of meaning to the wealth that they've acquired. And then by assigning that specialness to them, they're basically saying, well, I guess other people haven't worked as hard. And I think it's also a guilt thing because no one wants to feel like, ooh, you know, maybe I'm somehow... I have something that other people don't have access to. So I feel like it's kind of a shield for people not to feel guilty by just thinking, you know, other people just didn't work as hard as me, but they could do this. But it's not fair because folks like Kim Kardashian, they don't realize all the other people that made their success possible. It wasn't just them, but okay, so you have all of these people that are working under you that you're able to allocate responsibilities out to, and that helps you focus on all these other things and, you know, build wealth and whatever. So I don't think that people are terrible people. There are some people who are pretty awful who think that people who are impoverished are impoverished because of some character deficit, which I think is really messed up. Um, But I think it's that whole, you know, being special thing. People want to feel special and they will grasp onto that for dear life, even if it means saying that other people aren't special because they haven't um, achieved what they've achieved. So it's weird and it's unfortunate. Oh, we need to we need to come to terms with life being a meaningless trudge through a godless barren waste, don't we? I think if we could come to terms For with sure. we come to terms with that, I think we'd all be much happier. We would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> right, hello, Dave here, and I'm whispering so that old doesn't hear me. What I've done is snuck into this episode of Babbel just to give a little plug to my other podcast, Your Brain on Climate. It's all about human brains and how they work and don't work and how they think about the world and how what they think about the world is part of the climate crisis and how understanding the climate crisis means understanding human brains and how they work. And we come at things sideways, so we look at things you might think have nothing to do with climate change at all. But when you unpick it all, everything does. It's called Your Brain on Climate. It's available the same place you found the babble. I hope you like it. Please have a listen. Don't tell on I'm here. Oh, he's coming. Okay, bye. Your Brain on I suppose from the perspective of two people who are in the environmental movement in the UK, like there's a lot of people in the movement who would consider themselves pretty progressive, pretty right on, like, um, you know, probably across most of the sort of issues surrounding social justice. Like as you defined um, intersectionality earlier, or intersectional environmentalism earlier for people and planet, you know, people have been trotting out basically very similar phrasing in the UK environment movement for a very long time, but to what extent are they not getting it or are they thinking something else? So is this like my commentary as an outsider on UK climate activism? Because I could give a couple. Yeah, no, do, definitely. I mean, the, obviously, and you mentioned Extinction Rebellion earlier, like that is, I presume, quite yeah. an interesting sort of touch point as well. It is really interesting. And I've been talking to a lot of specifically like black and brown climate organizers in the UK and climate organizing in the UK is unlike anything that I've seen like on earth. It is amazing. It's almost like an activist industrial complex. That sounds bad, but it's kind of everywhere. Like you can easily find resources and bookshops, like Extinction Rebellion books, things like that. Like the scale of organizing is like unlike anything that I've ever seen before. Um, But I do think in terms of racial justice, And I don't know. It's just I don't understand the demographics of the UK. So maybe if I spend more time over there, I'll have like a better um, 
take on it, but I feel like there's a lot of talk about classism, but there isn't as much talk about racism, I suppose, and the ways that it manifests. And I think in the U.S., we just have such a strong history of like civil rights organizing and things like that. And in the U.K., it's just like a little bit different. So I think there's sometimes, even though people talk about climate justice, climate justice means something very different in the U.K. than what it means in the U.S. So the phrase environmental justice was made in the United States by Black and, you know, like um, Latino and um, Mexican organizers who were saying, hey, like we are impoverished and we're also people of color um, that are exposed to these environmental hazards. We need environmental justice. But then when I hear climate justice from UK organizers, it doesn't have that same like root and racial justice, but it does have a really strong like fight for the people, like in lots of talks about like classism and things like that. And I don't know. I think I need to do a little bit more research, but I think that's where the disconnect comes from. Because even when I talk to black and brown organizers in the UK, they're like down for the cause, but then sometimes they don't feel like truly seen and heard within the movement. So I don't know. I feel like Michaela Loach who's a really great friend of mine and she's an organizer in the UK, speaks to this on her Yikes podcast quite often about what it means to be a black woman organizer, previously very involved with Extinction Rebellion and like her thought process. So I would tell people who want to learn more, check out Michaela Loach, um, Dami Palmer, other organizers that are in my book, because for me, I'm still grappling with it. I don't understand the disconnect, but it just means something and feels a little bit different in both places. Tens of thousands of protesters marched across Glasgow with an urgent message. The climate is in crisis and the time to act is now. For one example, not to rant too much, I went to a protest in um, somewhere in Scotland. Edinburgh, maybe, I don't know, somewhere. And there there were U.S. organizers who were all people of color who wanted to participate in a demonstration to confront an oil executive that was at the conference. And I have never in my life felt so disconnected because I remember all the black and brown folks from the U.S. were like, okay, what's going on? Because the climate protesters in the UK were like, well, the police might come, you know, we got to get prepared. We have lawyers. And all the black and brown folks were like, the police? We are so scared. And I remember the UK organizers, not to shame them, but kind of belittling us. And they were like, what? Are you afraid about losing your paycheck or something? Are you afraid about getting your passport taken away? And I remember someone there was like, we're afraid of dying because that's what our police do to us and we're not trying to diminish what you're talking about but like we're scared and they took our fear as like being weak and not realizing that the theatrical protests that happen in the UK while there is like police brutality that happens it's just different so it was just and I remember going to the protests and there were police officers who were so nice to us and they were like do you need more room? Could you like stand away from this exit? And I remember me and the other black and brown folks just looking at each other like we would be in handcuffs and like beaten, like what is going on? So there's just a strong disconnect. And I think it's because the UK just has like, like I said, this activist industrial complex, which is different. And maybe more people are on board. I don't know. So I'm rambling. No, (laughs) no, 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 at all. Um, Yeah. There's just lots to reflect on that, isn't there? But I, I, I think you know there certainly have been criticisms of certainly the early days of of Extinction Rebellion in the UK, where it was it was taking that approach of yeah, what we want to do is get arrested, get as many people arrested, and you know police brutality against black and brown people is a big thing in the UK as well, and it was that was an incredibly exclusive tactic for all of the reasons or similar reasons to to what you just described and i think you know i'm not close to extinction rebellion organizers so i can't speak from experience but i think probably they would say they have learned a lot and listened a lot since those days but i don't know yeah. if that's if that's the case i wanted to sort of pick it up a bit on that i wanted to talk about something you write about really early on in your book and we've been sort of talking about it all the way through here which is that cognitive dissonance thing that happens in white environmental movements 
stroke mainstream environmental movements in in the UK, where like you kind of I think I, I guess this is my own story, right? Kind of intellectually, when I got into environmental stuff, it was like save the trees. I like trees. Save nice animals. They're nice. And then I went on a went on a journey of kind of learning about actually people live on the planet too, and then learning about is this your story justice. of self, Dave? It's my story yourself. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I hope you're putting a good, good soundtrack underneath this. Well, it's edit. about to become a rather rubbish story yourself because I got to a point when I like intellectually get it, right? But I'm gonna, I would be lying if I said, as a white man in his 40s, I'd be lying if I said I feel it in my guts, climate justice, environmental justice, in the way that people on the sharp end of it do. It would be a lie to say that. Yeah. And I think that... that uh, that lie is hard to that, that that fact is hard to say. Actually, it's quite a hard thing to say, and I wonder if there is something about the thing that does to your brain because it kind of makes it does make you shut down a little bit, right? Is that sort yeah. of have I described anything that makes sense of the cognitive dissonance thing you talk about, or have I yeah. just embarrassed myself for no reason? No, what you're saying is completely normal, and even for me, like. I feel very deeply the advocacy specifically for like women and black folks because I'm a black woman. And sometimes I would get, so there's something that happens within even, I guess, communities of color that I explore in the book called lateral oppression, where even though we're not, you know, white, we're not the majority, um, we might compete against each other and say like, well, we need to talk about black issues. We need to talk about indigenous issues and Asian issues, et cetera. And there can even be a comparative nature. And I think it makes sense that we are most passionate about the issues that impact our lives, but just making sure that we have an understanding of our passion that we feel for whatever topic areas that doesn't need to compete or discredit um, what other people are feeling and what they're passionate about. And it can really be a simple thing of like not forcing yourself to feel emotions that you don't feel because sometimes if you're not connected to an issue, you won't feel it in the same way. But finding ways to amplify those messages or even just acknowledge the reality of it. I think if so many folks just acknowledged hey, racial justice is an issue. This is a problem. This is something that we need to talk about. And maybe they're mostly focusing on saving the whales, but as long as they don't say, I'm focusing on saving the whales, so this is not important. Like that's the wrong approach. Acknowledging that it's a reality, is the right approach, trying to amplify that, make space for organizers like black and brown organizers in the UK. I would say that's a step in the right direction, but trying to force yourself to feel something that you don't feel, you don't have to, and it doesn't make you a bad person because again, there are probably even parts to both of you all's identity. Um, I don't know what that is, but even if it's like, I don't know, like, I don't know you all's cultural backgrounds. There's probably something that you all feel really deeply connected to because of your family. Like it would make sense that you care a little bit more about that than you do other things. Um, but just creating that space, I think, is really important. There's something wrong with your fiance, sir. <laughs> oh my God, she's not Welsh, is she? <laughs> it's so empowering, isn't it? Because you often get dickheads who will kind of go like, "Oh, well, all lives matter," or. Um, oh. You know, or I, or, or versions of that. Well, you know, but I'm, I, I, I've yeah. got X, Y, and Z thing, and therefore A, B, and C, other thing I'm supposed to care about, I haven't got time for. And, and like the idea of just going, you can care about all of it, but like just sort of, it's not a competition, really, right? It's like, yeah. It's not a competition. I think that's the most important part. Like we would have so much progress, like even if people were focusing on the specific topic areas that they care about. But like I said earlier, just acknowledging the importance of all those other things, like it doesn't take away from me and my advocacy for my black womanhood to also be like, I stand in solidarity with the indigenous peoples all around the world. And like what that solidarity looks like can be different for everyone. It can mean like actively participating and going to protests. It can look like donating it can look like sharing things when it comes up um, but just not dismissing goes such a long way and there's so much internal conflict within the climate movement to figure out like what's the most important issue that we need to care about and I wish more people realize like people will have different theories of change and there is no one most important issue but we can tackle all these different issues and like empower each other um, instead of just dismissing each other and competing and comparing because I feel like that gets us nowhere. 
I guess it's tempting to say, uh, you know, how can how can any of us hope to do something about even one massive cause? Uh, never mind all of them intersected. Like it's also, oh my god, everything we're concerned about is terrifying and insurmountable, and yet there's all this other stuff which is all connected and even more terrifying and insurmountable and complicated. So what are what are the solutions? You, that, you better turn this round pretty quick on. Yeah. Bumming me out. <laughs> I mean, that is essentially why I sit at my desk and sort of don't do anything for large portions oh, of my life. That's but, why. Uh, uh, I don't know. So what... What? Help! Help! Is what I'm saying here. Um, what, are, what are the solutions that people might actually grab hold of um, and do something about? And yeah, you know... Rather than sort of trying to invent something perfect all by yourself, what's the mm-hmm. advice of other people that you might point us towards? Yeah, I love thinking just like visualizing a little circle when I think about movement building. And sometimes like us as individuals, we think it's like it's on us to save the planet. If I'm not here giving my all all the time, like I'm not going to save the planet. But we have to think about like communities and community care. So like if you look at that circle and it's a global community, but even if it's your local community, like if you have to step out for a second to go take care of yourself, it's okay because the circle might get a little bit smaller, but it's still really effective. And that's the part of community care when you come back in you leave space for other people to take care of themselves and speaking of that um so we can end on a special note like you are special <laughs> you are special um, there are individual skills that you possess that can be applied to a movement even if you think that it is like the stupid stupid stupidest or silliest thing like um in my book i say like every movement needs an accountant like most nonprofits that i know we don't know how to keep the books like excel files no but there's someone out there who's really good at math who's really good at excel spreadsheets and accounting that can volunteer that skill so they're not even changing who they are they could be a full-time accountant and they volunteer five hours a month with a local climate justice organization to help them with a spreadsheet and that will do, you know, wonders. Or for me, I used to be really shy. Like I'm a pretty reserved person. um, And that's why I'm a writer. And it's funny because now I speak about things, but I'm still very reserved. And that's why I write because I process. So I thought, you know, I'm not the person that wants to hold a megaphone in front of a protest. I would be pretending if I was doing that. What I can do is write. So I'm just going to write and I kind of know how to use social media. So I'm going to try to make some graphics. So I think people really getting in touch with who they are. If you bake food, guess what? Everyone needs to be nourished in every movement that you care about. And don't let anyone tell you that it's not important because those cookies, you know, I want some right now, like those cookies that you could bring to a protest are very important because that's what gives people the energy to yell at the top of their lungs for climate justice so really finding what it is what your unique skills are you are special um and apply that to what you care about there you are everyone all movements need sarcasm i'll told you told you we were useful. they do yeah. and humor <laughs> like this podcast is so important like i'm cracking up i think the humor in the uk is just like so funny it is unmatched um and i'm just so thankful yeah we need funny people who are bringing levity to really important conversations because we need more joy we need more laughter because that will sustain us in the in the work that we do more than like doom and gloom ever could so yeah shout out to y'all so let just uh, give a shout out one final shout out for your book in case people have forgotten the name of it uh, what's it called what's mm-hmm. what's on the back of it what's all that <laughs> where would you like it's people called- to buy it as well Yeah, so it's called The Intersectional Environmentalist, How to Dismantle Systems of Oppression to Protect People and Planet, very long. Um, But I'd love for you all to support your local indie bookstore. Um, One of them is called The Black Feminist Bookshop, and I'll actually be working with them to create a Black Ecofeminist Summit in London in October, so stay tuned for that. But yeah, please support your local indie bookstores, your local indie booksellers. Don't support Capital A. Um, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. And you said that you have uh, built a small social media following, which I think is under 
a tiny, uh, tiny bit bigger by, than ours. By a magnitude tiny. of about a million. <laughs> you have a large social media following. Where, where can people add to that? Where can they find you on socials? Yeah, you can check out uh, the organization I helped uh, found called Intersectional Environmentalist at Intersectional Environmentalist on Instagram and all of our social media channels. And then if you just want to see me like live in life, um, my personal blog is Green Girl Leah and my Twitter is Leah Tommy. Right, so that is just about it for another episode of Babel. And indeed, for a small little break, we are going to be off for just one week, and then yes. we'll, we, we will be back. Probably. Probably. Yep. Uh, and then we'll be off again for yes. a couple of weeks. But don't worry about it. Babel is on track. Everything's fine. Planning has never been this advanced. Um, there's a spreadsheet and everything. It's fine. We're recording several episodes in advance of actually putting them out. I think this is some quite advanced Babel logistics. We're reading two books in a week. Now that is some good going. I'm going on holiday to have a break from reading. I know everyone else <laughs> takes books on holiday, but I'm exhausted by all these fantastic books we keep having to read. You can get in touch with us uh, to tell us what you like, what you don't like, who we should interview next. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et by emailing hello at sustainababble.fish, by tweeting us at the Babble Wagon, or by searching Facebook for Sustainababble. And if you want to really make our cockles warm and our fuzzy areas moist, uh, you Shh, can. Shit, what? Nothing. nothing. No, well, okay. If you'd like to be kind, yes. that would be nice. We had a very kind email from oh, Julia this week. It was nice. Which, this week, as we record, which is a few weeks kind. ago, as you listen. Several weeks ago, yes, sorry. We had a kind email from Julia and it was just really nice. It was short and very nice and it made us warm and fuzzy and we thought, that's nice. Thank thank you, Julia. So, you know, when you're on the beach sipping a pina colada, fire off a drunken email to Roland Dave saying, you're mediocre at best and that'll be fine. Thank you as ever to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that does the music that starts, ends and intertwinkles this podcast and to the magnificent Arthur Stovall for the local what adorns us and our website and our t-shirts, what you can buy at wobblywobblywobbly.sustainababble.fish. Thank you as ever to the legion of wonderful Patreon supporters who keep this proudly independent show on the road. You can join them at wobblywobblywobbly.patreon.com slash sustainababble. And if you can't or won't do that, that's fine. No judgment. But what you can do is go over to your podcast medium of choice and leave us a little review. Five stars, please, if you can. And definitely write a review with your hands. Loads of people have been doing that recently and we have seen it makes a difference. Please do it. Honestly, get good guests. Make Babble live forever. Yes? Yes. Yes. Right, that's it. We're off for our little holiday woos, little breaky woos. Have a lovely time, Dave. I fully intend to rest. Uh, what do you fully intend to do? Uh... I mean, let's face it, we're back again in five seconds, aren't we, in the scheme of things? But, uh, yes. Anyway, should we get on with it? Off with it. Bye! Bye! Bye.